This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome, 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 welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg. Grab a stool and come warm yourself by the fire. There are stories to be told and you are among friends. Coming up in uh, minutes, a top cryptocurrency expert who will explain what is the right digital coin to buy, how to trade, where to sell, when to sell, and can cryptocurrencies end the monopoly on the Federal Reserve Banks and perhaps restore power to the people? Is Bitcoin a game changer or a sophisticated scam? Hour two, the CEO of a a company that can erase cellular damage, stimulate tissue regeneration and treat a range of diseases, basically, Advances in molecular biology have found the reset button on the human body. Uh, Before all that, let me introduce the boys in the band on the Gibson Flying V guitar, Ian Robertson. My fine rockabilly friend on the other side of the glass, twisting the knobs and dials. In here in studio with me on the Rickenbacker bass guitar and occasionally the theremin, the mysterious and idiosyncratic Albert Vinzel, my hardworking story producer. And on the Hammond B3, feature producer, live YouTube stream producer, Ryan White. Gentlemen, welcome all and thank you for all you do. Now, speaking of YouTube, we do stream this radio transmission <clears throat> Excuse me, uh, live with pictures uh, most every week. Check out the YouTube channel, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett, and please hit the red sub button. We're trying to get to 10,000 subs. We're just a few hundred shy, I think, of 700 sub- or 7,000 subscribers. So let's see if we can get there by this time next week. If you haven't already done so, again, please hit the red sub button. Don't forget the, uh, the new podcast, Conspiracy Unlimited. New episodes dropping every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. It's keeping me busy, but I love it, and I hope you're enjoying it as well. You can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or go to the uh, website, conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com. All right, so I, uh, when it comes to uh, technology, I would, I would be in the category of late adopter, late adapter, very late. Uh, I'm still trying to get my Rubik's Cube out of the box. <laughs> 
that shows you. Uh, never mind. Anyway, uh, so this whole cryptocurrency craze that I guess has really started about, um, what would you say, Ryan, 2010, 2009 with Bitcoin? Well, it's probably when it started, but really a craze only the past couple of years now. Right, right. And when it started, Bitcoin was like less than a dollar, right? That's correct, yeah. And, and uh, now it's around uh, 11400 in that range. It was up to, what was it, 19000 It It almost Last hit 20000 a couple weeks ago. And then it tumbled. And it crashed. Some places had it a little below 10000 but now it's holding strong on the 11, 12. Right. I just, I don't get it. Um, I, I, but that's why we have my next guest here. He's going to explain all. What is cryptocurrency? Should you own it? How does uh, Bitcoin, as I say, start out in 2010 at less than a dollar and roughly $11,400 today? Uh, in fact, uh, the, it did tumble this week and uh, it emerged that uh, people could be banned from trading the cryptocurrency in various countries around the world. South Korea was among the countries whose government has been signaling that it plans to crack down on cryptocurrency trading. The country's justice minister said the government there had great concerns about digital currency. Don't they have bigger things on their plate to worry about right now? Than, I don't know. Anyway, they're saying that they're preparing a bill to ban it, to ban cryptocurrency uh, through exchanges uh, amid fears it could make tax evasion easier. Ah, there's the rub. All right, well, we'll get into that over the next hour. We're going to explore two possible futures for digital currency. One where <clears throat> prosperity explodes and people live free and in control of their lives. That's what this program is all about. Among other, uh, or another future, rather bleak, where blockchain socialists, I love that term, blockchain socialists, track every purchase you make and take your money to give to others. That's socialism, right? All these millennials according to a Pew Research, who love socialism. 70% in the U.S. want to live in a socialist country. Get on a plane, fly to Venezuela, and have a good long gander. That's socialism. As Margaret Thatcher said, the problem with socialism is eventually you run out of other people's money. But that's another show. Let's get uh, Sean Worthington in here. He's a tenured faculty member in the Computer Science Department of Butte College in Northern California and an expert in computer information systems. He's the author of the book Beyond Bitcoin, The Future of Digital Currencies. And he's the creator of CloudCoin, the world's first cloud-based currency. See, there's another area. I'm not in the cloud, as far as I know. Uh, my feet are firmly planted on the ground. Listeners can uh, visit digitalfrontiernews.com and request a free copy of Sean's book, Beyond Bitcoin, The Future of Digital Currency. And get this, you can get five free cloud coins. DigitalFrontierNews.com. All right, let's get Sean H. Worthington in here. Climb aboard and welcome to The Conspiracy Show, Sean. How are you? Very good. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. All right, so you're speaking to a complete novice, and many of my, well, some of my listeners uh, might be sort of in the same boat. So let's just start off with some definitions. Uh, crypto, Absolutely. Cryptocurrency versus digital currency. Are they the same thing? No, they're really not. I mean, uh, you can say that cryptocurrency is a subset of digital currency. There's been a big problem for many years. It's called the physical integrity problem of digital money. And that is, how do you make it so that you've got some money that cannot be counterfeited, or it cannot be deleted, or it can't be just deleted from some kind of server? And the cryptocurrencies were the first ones to solve this problem. 
Right, because so much of commerce now is, uh, you know, it's not conducted, obviously, in, in, in paper currency. They're just uh, digit, they're blips on a computer screen flying at the speed of light across the, the pond, uh, and that can be hacked. So cryptocurrency was developed as a result of this hacking, like WannaCry and all of these things? Well, it was developed to be an alternative to the Federal Reserve. Mm -hmm. And, of course, when we're using our debit cards, our credit cards, all of those cards actually reference or are supposed to reference money that is in some vault somewhere. And so the digital monies that we use or are used to are actually just referencing real money, real dollars and cents or uh, euros or what have you. But the cryptocurrency like Bitcoin is the first standalone money that cannot be just destroyed or turned off by a government or by some single entity. Right. It's not a fiat uh, currency, which uh, is basically... Uh, based on fractional reserve banking, money that's created out of thin air by the, the Federal Reserve, and then it's issued as debt, which we can never sort of get out from under, because um, every time you try to pay off the debt, that money that you're using is... Anyway, well, that, that's a long story. We've talked about it endlessly on the program. But, okay, so, uh, Bitcoin. Now, I've been told that it's, it, it can be tricky to buy and even trickier to sell. So walk me through, I mean, it, it is, it, when you buy Bitcoin, do you actually receive physical coinage? What, what, what is it uh, that you get? So Bitcoin is a marketing term, and you're not going to receive any physical coinage. What you're actually going to do is you're going to get an account on something called the public ledger. And it's just a number on there, and you're going to get a private key, which allows you to access that money and to... Uh, transfer it to other accounts. And so you get this private uh, key. It takes about three days or something to enroll on the public ledger. It takes about three days to download the blockchain, which stores all of the different transactions that have ever happened in the past. It's about 150 gigabytes. And once you have those two things, you have what's called a wallet. And then you can uh, find somebody that will sell them, sell Bitcoins to you. This might be difficult. You might have to go to an exchange and sign up for an exchange. That might take a couple of weeks because they'll have to get your driver's license number and all your tax ID and all this other stuff in order for the IRS to be able to track you down and see what you're doing. All right. So uh, let's say, for example, back in 2010, you bought Bitcoin for less than a dollar and you're sitting on, let's say you bought 100 of them. And today it's worth somewhere north of $11,000. How do you unload it? Well, you have to find a buyer, and that could be, there's different ways to do that. I could look up on basically a local Craigslist, something called local bitcoins. I might be able to find somebody that wants to buy them with cash. I could meet them at a coffee shop or something and transfer uh, my bitcoins for their cash. But generally, what we do is we go to an exchange and you sign up for it. And uh, Coinbase is a very famous one. And of course, that's going to take some time. But at least you will have your bitcoins in escrow, and people will have their dollars in escrow. And you can make really quick trades that way, and then uh, hopefully get your dollars. Is cryptocurrency is it a is it in fact a currency, or is it, uh, for example, the United States? I believe re considers the government considers cryptocurrency to be a commodity. Which is it? And if it's a currency, how do, you, how do you buy things with it? Well, first we have to define what currency is and what it means. 
And what a monetary system is, is it's an information system. It's a database, and its job is to track who created value for the economy. And by having money, I can go and prove that I did some work to you, and then you're going to trade goods with me because you know that I actually uh, warrant that trade. And the money acts as data. So the coins and the bills, that is actually data. And so anything that applies the rules of databases to money that has integrity can be used as money. All right. So the dollar, uh, money, used to be backed by physical things like gold and silver. uh, And now it's not really backed by anything. What is uh, cryptocurrency backed by? Why, In other words, why does it have value? So you don't need to back money by anything. What is important is that money can do its job. And that means that it has to have these properties as data. If it's good data and it's good at tracking what everybody's doing, then it's doing its job and it makes good money. All right. So one of the things that gives something value is a limited supply. Certainly. One of the essential ingredients of money is that it cannot be counterfeited. Because if you can pull money out of the air, then uh, it's going to create an opportunity for somebody basically to hack the, uh, uh, the information system and to take all the value. And of course, this is what we see with the Federal uh, Reserve Bank, which has an alliance with the United States government. The government grants the Federal Reserve Bank monopolistic powers so that it can borrow money anytime it wants to. And the Federal Reserve can basically now print up money anytime that it wants to make a loan. And the government also gets to borrow any money that they want. And this allows the government and the banking system to both hack the system and counterfeit money, create new money. Bitcoin is, uh, you can also counterfeit money, but in order to counterfeit it, you have to do all this stuff called mining, which is quite difficult and expensive. And so it's much more less, it's much less likely that the Bitcoin will be counterfeited than the U.S. dollar will be. All right, we'll uh, step away for a moment, come back. Sean Worthington, the author of Beyond Bitcoin, the future of digital currencies, and the creator of CloudCoin, the world's first cloud-based currency. And he's giving you an opportunity to own five free cloud coins. We'll tell you about that as well. The Conspiracy Show returns in mere moments. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Sean Worthington is with us. Tenured faculty member in the Computer Science Department of Butte College, Northern California, and the author of Beyond Bitcoin, The Future of Digital Currencies. And again, the website, digitalfrontiernews.com, and you can request a free copy of the book and um, also get five free cloud coins. We're going to ask him about uh, what what cloud coins are, how they work, and so forth, and how you can get your free cloud coins. However, I want to get back to just sort of understanding some of the basic principles underlying cryptocurrency. First of all, the the creator of of Bitcoin, 
uh, there is this urban legend that he's not even actually a real person. Uh, I mean, and and how? I mean, can just one individual, anybody, just start a cryptocurrency? Well, I certainly think it's possible because I did. I uh, you know put together the information, but uh, it really requires a lot of information about economics and about computer science and computer information systems. And in his case, a lot about encryption. So it would be technically, you know, it would be challenging. Does this guy even exist? Do we know for sure, 100%? Well, there is some evidence that there's a guy in Australia that is the one that created the Bitcoin. However, a lot of people don't uh, think that evidence could have been faked and that it could be something like the CIA or... Uh, the NSA that tried to create a system in which would track everybody's expenditures because it actually does track everybody's expenditures. And if somebody knows the accounts and can link the account name to the person, it's only pseudo-anonymous, so you can actually track everything that somebody buys and you can know how many Bitcoins they have and who they do business with. Well, this is the dystopian uh, future, and there are sort of two. One is that that the cryptocurrency could liberate um, uh, humankind. The other is that it would enslave us, and and um, I'm not sure if this is your term, blockchain socialists. So sort of, that's my term. It's yeah. a great term, blockchain socialists. So let's talk about this dystopian uh, vision. How this digital currency, no no paper currency anymore. We're moving. Uh, you know, we've all talked about you know the re- book of Revelation and moving towards a cashless society and mark of the beast and all of that. But if we move mm-hmm. into cryptocurrency, that is a danger, right? That the government could uh, essentially control, or they could track every every dollar, uh, every dollar that we spend, every dollar that we earn, if we were trading in cryptocurrency. Correct? That's correct. And so we've seen this already happening in Venezuela. Just last month, they were the first country to announce that they were going to have a national cryptocurrency. They were saying that it would be backed by oil, but basically all of the citizens get a, assigned an account. It's kind of like their social security number. And they get a private key, and then they can go and trade amongst themselves. And this allows them to track everybody, and it certainly can allow them to just uh, tax and reallocate money from one person to another person. So uh, that is a very dangerous thing. India also, they're doing this huge, massive, imagine, 1.2 billion people or however many people in India, they're doing this huge recall on currency. Everyone's being ordered to take their paper money into the bank. And, of course, this is ostensibly to curb counterfeiting. Uh, But but Mm -hmm. is this also an example, India trying to move to a cashless society and institute this, this digital currency? Yeah, I think so, because... Uh, in order to really run that blockchain, you've got to have some supercomputers. Bitcoin cannot do it. And there's, I mean, there's huge, wonderful computers to run Bitcoin. They're not scalable. The more people that sign up for it, the slower it gets. And so uh, it seems like there might be something else going on. So then why should we embrace um, cryptocurrency if that is one of the possible futures? Is it because in, in the case of India and Venezuela... The government is trying to control the cryptocurrency rather than individuals? Well, um, so if the, if the, crypto, if the uh, blockchain is free from government interference and people can trade with it anonymously or pseudo-anonymously and nobody knows the account numbers, then it does give them a sense of privacy 
It allows them to buy and sell things without bank fees, without paying taxes, without having tariffs, without having to worry about international laws. And so it's a good thing if we want to buy like a million dollars worth of oil out of Venezuela, Bitcoin would be a great system to use. It might take four hours to do the transaction and cost $45, but that's well worth it because we can get around the Venezuela's government's uh, restrictions on dollars. And, and this, this is why, ostensibly, countries like South Korea just announced that they are looking into a bill to ban cryptocurrency because they see this as a method of doing an end round or an end run around their equivalent of the, uh, you know, the, the Canadian Revenue Agency or the IRS. So why, I mean, is that not then a distinct possibility? Is this not sort of one of the reasons that Bitcoin, the, the, the value has tumbled in the last uh, week because countries are now moving to ban it? Unless they can control it, they're going to ban it. Well, the problem is, is they can't really ban it. They can try to ban the exchanges in some regards, but the currency itself is so secure that the government would have a very difficult time getting rid of it. Uh, it's especially true with CloudCoin, which uh, you know I've, I've uh, invented. But um, I don't think that the reason why Bitcoin crashed was because of South Korea. I think that they had a bubble going on and it just popped on its own. And that might have been the, it might have happened at the same time. But uh, I think we just ran out of investors, thanks to the Federal Reserve. People were going out and mortgaging their homes. They were borrowing on credit cards, getting money or dollars from the Federal Reserve and putting those into Bitcoin. And that caused us to have a bubble. But it wasn't because of South Korea that that crashed. All right. Now, I, I will, we will get into to, uh, to CloudCoin here in a moment. But I, I, I want to ask you one more question. And that is, do you foresee mm -hmm. a day... Um, and I guess this will depend on, you know, if we if, if if fiat currency continues to be devalued, you know, in the United States and China are getting into a currency war, China being accused of manipulating their currency. The reason they devalue, obviously, is to make their exports cheaper and make it easier for governments to service their debts. But it's, a you know, the inflation and so forth is a tax on people that, that hold paper money. If that continues to happen, do you foresee a day when cryptocurrency will be the norm in terms of daily transactions? In other words, what, in other words, I could go to the grocery store and buy my my groceries with cryptocurrency. Absolutely, because if you want to go down with a sinking ship, you would stay with the fiat money. But if you want to actually get rewarded for the work that you do, then the cryptocurrency—I shouldn't say crypto; it's a digital currencies what's going to make your life much better. So any business that uses digital currencies is going to have an advantage over those that don't. And we all have to economize. We all have to be efficient. And digital currencies allows us to do that. But wouldn't governments be right in, in, in their fear that we would then avoid paying taxes? We would evade paying taxes? Absolutely, yes. I mean, uh, people who use Bitcoin tend to not pay taxes. And why would you if there's no way for the government to know that you bought or sold anything or made any money? And mm. so it's going to be a big threat to governments. It's going to cause the governments to try to crack down, as we've seen with South Korea. There's probably going to be a big fight. There's going to be maybe even wars on it where you've got the people that want the taxes against the people that don't want the taxes. But uh, I think in the end, the people that don't want the taxes are going to win because the, uh, you, there's no way to defeat it. They don't have a way to to effectively 
uh, control it, and that's going to cause the governments to have to cut back their budgets drastically. Well, I, uh, it's not a coincidence. I think that the two presidents that stood up to the Federal Reserve, for example, ended up being shot in the head in public. Uh, I mean, this, they're not going to go down without a very big fight. Yes. So they'll start by making jokes, and then they, uh, you know, they, I guess they ignore it first, and then they make jokes, and then they get to a fight. So there's going to be a fight, and it's going to be ugly. But I think that the digital currencies will win. I think that the people want digital currencies. I mean, if uh, money is absolutely essential to our civilization, and if any country decides they want to get rid of digital money or get rid of this part of it, they're going to be just cutting their own nose off. So I think that uh, the people will demand digital currencies, and it'll end up winning. Well, listen, I'm I'm all for for minimal government. I think they should, um, well, up until tonight, I would have said mint the money, build the bridges, and provide for the common defense. Uh, but we want to take minting them. Well, they gave up minting the money, obviously. Uh, but, I mean, I do believe there is a role for government, and governments need revenue. Um, you know, we need to build bridges, we need to deliver the mail, and so forth. So how would that be affected by cryptocurrency? What is the role of a government and the nation-state in a world where cryptocurrency is the norm? Well, they have to sh- they have to shift their focus on taxing things that are physical that can be seen. So they're going to have to tax property such as houses and cars and other things that you can actually see sitting in your parking lot. <laughs> okay, because, so a consumption uh, tax income could be very difficult. All right, so just a pure consumption tax. Well, um, you know, it, it might be possible as far as consumption goes. I might be able to buy some gasoline at the gas station without the government even knowing. I mean, it's, it's within the realm of possibility. Hmm. Interesting, interesting. All right, so there's, um, you know, since Bitcoin um, arose, there's now just, there's, there's, I don't know, dozens and dozens and dozens, thousands, thousands, Ryan thousands. is telling me, of these cryptocurrencies. Um, one of them, Ethereum. I believe was uh, created here in Toronto, where I'm sitting, by a, um, a Russian uh, former University of Waterloo student. Um, but now you have one called Cloud Coins, and it's being billed as the world's first cloud-based currency. What does that mean, the first uh, cloud-based currency? It means that it gets its physical integrity from the cloud as opposed to from encryption. And so with the blockchain, which is the data structure that makes Bitcoin work, you're able to write transactions to it. You're able to read those transactions, but you can never delete the transactions that have happened, and you can't go back and change or modify the transactions that have happened. So you get this permanent record of what happened, and this allows you to track money from person to person to person to person, this big, long chain of spending, and you can stop counterfeiting in that way. It, uh, with CloudCoin, it is a different system. Instead of tracking everybody's expenditures, what we do is we just check to see if the money is authentic or whether it's counterfeit. And we do this by having clouds all over the world that are run by different people, different countries, different hardware, different software, different uh, situations. And uh, I go to give you some money. The money is a JPEG image, and it's got a bunch of passwords basically in it. 25 passwords one for these different clouds all around the world when i know those passwords i'm the owner once i give it to you then you know all the passwords and you can change them all 
And so it only takes about 90 milliseconds or less than a second to change them all using some software we call Pwning software. Pwn stands for password ownership. And basically, I don't have to sign up for an account because my money's got its own account. It's got its own authentication system going on. This allows us to trade between each other over email or Skype or any kind of file messaging system without even hitting a blockchain or any kind of central thing like that. And it's uh, much more efficient. Much, It's 100% private. So it's really revolutionary. All right. And um, you're giving away five free cloud coins. Why are you giving them away? What's the rationale there? Well, that's what uh, we got a marketing partner, and that's what they decided to do. And so I don't like to give away something because it makes it seem like it's cheap. But they're trying to get people to sign up for their newsletter, and they want to uh, then be able to educate them about cloud coins and other digital currencies. Right. So in other words, you have to raise so, awareness about that cloud coin exists uh, in order to, you know, to break through the noise, because as, as um, Ryan was in my ear telling me, there are thousands of cryptocurrencies out there. So how do you, you know, how do you grab people's attention and how do you, uh, you know, sort of break through? Yeah. And this is the first well, cloud we're working with this uh, organization called risebank.com. They're actually trying to create the first decentralized bank. And they have gone through all of these cryptocurrencies, about 700 of them, not all 1,000 of them, but 700 of them. And what they found is that out of the 700, 694, that's 694, have the same API, which means they're the same currency. It's possible to just take the blockchain, uh, Bitcoin, and copy it and just call it something else and market it as something else and raise money. And that's exactly what they've been doing. So there's only a few unique uh, currencies out there that use anything besides blockchain. And there's actually only three technologies that have ever been created that solve the physical integrity problem. One is the blockchain. Uh, the second is Rada ours, and there's a new one called the Hashgraph, which uh, does it as well, but I don't think it's got a feature because uh, it's nowhere close to our Rada system. Okay, we're coming up to the break on the uh, the bottom of the hour here. Um, just very quickly, so uh, how do people get a free copy of your book, Beyond Bitcoin, and then how do they get the five free cloud coins? So they can go to digitalfrontiernews.com and just sign up for the newsletter, or they can just Google buy cloud coin. All right, and then so they can get their free copy of uh, Beyond Bitcoin. Is that a, a, an ebook, or does that come in the mail as a, a paperback? Or? It's an ebook that they'll be able to download immediately. Okay, and then the five free cloud coins. <clears throat> uh, I mean, how does that? How does that? Does that go into your PayPal, or how does that work? So it's very different. You actually will get five JPEG images, and you will take these JPEG images and you'll import them into some software. They'll take all the passwords and change them all. And it'll show you how much you have in your folder. And then you own them, and then you can spend them by ex exporting them from your software and emailing them to people or um, transferring them in different ways. Okay. Now, I learned a new term tonight from my, uh, my good uh, producer here, Ryan, market cap. So are you able – I mean, what is the market cap of CloudCoin? I mean, is it – has it sort of registered yet? I mean, do you have – I mean, how many of them are in circulation, and, and what's the price point on, on – a on a single unit. So the market capitalization of CloudCoin is hard to determine because we don't have a, a, a market in which allows all buyers and sellers to come together. We hope to have one in the next few weeks. But uh, in, when I say market, I mean exchange. We do have an exchange in which is pretty rough and tumble where we have to have trusted people be on it. And it shows that our market cap is about $17 million. 
17 million. So that's the, and then you arrive at that by the price per cloud coin multiplied by the, the number in circulation, right? That's right. Okay. So we have about 300 million in circulation, and they're worth about six cents each. Wow. 300 million of them are in circulation. And are people, they're, so are, they're, are they trading them? Are they back and forth? Are they. Are they so just... since we have the most private currency, we don't see any transactions going on our blockchain. But we can see that there's transactions, and we can see that they're trading them. They're actually using them to buy and sell. Interesting. All right. Sean Worthington stays with us. Beyond Bitcoin, the future of digital currencies. We'll open up the phone lines, questions and comments. And uh, we'll take this to the top of the hour. Second hour, hitting the reset button on your body's cellular biology. The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. In a democracy, we elect officials so we can sleep at night. So why are you up? 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Well, this is a real education for yours truly. Always late to the dance. Uh, But uh, we are learning about cryptocurrency, and we are doing so with... Sean Worthington, who is a um, one of the top experts in cryptocurrency and the author of Beyond Bitcoin, uh, he's also giving away five free clown coin, uh, cloud coins. And uh, again, if you want to do that, you just go to his uh, website where you can subscribe to a newsletter, and it's digitalfrontiernews.com. Digitalfrontiernews.com. Again, Beyond Bitcoin: The Future of Digital. Uh, currencies. You're mentioning the uh, the cloud, and uh, you'll have to allay some of my my fears, which are probably based largely on ignorance. But here goes. Uh, I, I remember you know reading about Jeff Bezos, the owner of uh, Amazon and uh, the Washington Post, and, and and how he had a contract with the CIA to build a cloud for them. Uh, um, and so, I mean, a huge conflict of interest there, Washington Post, you know, how do they report on the CIA and so forth? That's another topic. But uh, do we have a, a right to be concerned about who's controlling the cloud if, if the currency, the cryptocurrency is cloud-based? Oh, sure. I mean, we have a different type of a cloud. We have, instead of all of the data being in one place or the data being in one place and then being mirrored or, um, or or copied to different places, we have the data shredded. And what that means is that a little piece of the data goes to each one of the 25 different clouds. So it's shredded into 25 different pieces. If anybody was a, any cloud owner was to get a hold of that data, well, they could look in their own databases, of course. It wouldn't make any sense to them. They would have to put it together with all of the other data and so we've gained a fault tolerance by instead of having, you know, this data in one place, it's all shredded everywhere. Warren Buffett is not big on uh, a Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies. Uh, why, why do you suppose that is? I mean, he thinks it's a, a, a bubble. Is this just a scare tactic? Well, I think that there is some truth to the bubble 
thing. Uh, when Bitcoin started, it certainly was used by people that just wanted to get away from the Federal Reserve and maybe use some money to cross borders and be able to trade privately. Then we started seeing people be able to uh, put their money into Bitcoin. It would go up in value. And so it's just been this crazy thing over the last couple of years, and especially over the past uh, four or five months, in which these investors have come in. These investors are crazy people. They don't really know anything about what's going on. And they have invested in Bitcoin when there's thousands of other currencies that do the exact same thing. So I think it has been a craze. So there is some truth to that. But underlying that, there are some fundamental values that digital currencies give that privacy, the ability to trade all over the world without fees and, and uh, bank, bank transactions. I'm guessing one of the, the obstacles, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm part of that generation that is, you know, we have sort of one foot still in the analog world. You know, I prefer vinyl to CD, and we don't even use CDs now. It's just ones and zeros on a computer and so forth. Um, I mean, what is the profile of a, of a cryptocurrency uh, investor? Because, for example, the people that listen to this show, you know, the conspiracy show, uh, you know, somewhat mm-hmm. suspicious of government, somewhat suspicious of, uh, you know, I, I do live events occasionally, and, and the people that listen to this type of program, I mean, they don't even like credit cards. You know, we, we're guns and butter, I guess, and gold. We love our mm-hmm. we're gold bugs. What's the profile of a cryptocurrency uh, investor? Do they tend to be younger? Yes. I mean, uh, to begin with, when Bitcoin came out, it was pretty much libertarians. And then we started to see these young investors come in, and these young investors are from all over the world. A lot of them had made a million dollars, and they think they're really smart and intelligent because they've made some money. But uh, really, they were just at the right place at the right time, and they're very cocky, and they're really pain in the butt, actually, to deal with. So they're not your, not, not necessarily your freedom-loving people. Millennials, a pain in the butt? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can relate. Uh, but then, I mean, when, when people, if they're doing this as an investment and they decide to cash out, what do they cash into? Back into fiat currency or into another commodity like gold or silver or, or what? A lot of them have been cashing into other digital currencies and just kind of pinging back and forth trying to build up this perceived wealth in terms of dollars. But, uh, no, I haven't seen any really good exit plans yet. When you started... Um, uh, cloud coins. Um, you know, everything takes money. A startup takes money. D- and, and often it comes from private capital, private capital markets. Uh, is there such a thing as a crypto private capital market, or did you have to use the good old-fashioned paper private capital? No, we created our own money, and so we were self-capitalized probably the first business in history, I don't know. And so we just started spending ourselves into existence. We would literally hire system administrators and we would pay them in CloudCoin and we would hire programmers and pay them in CloudCoin. And this has caused the value of CloudCoin to go up, which means that now we can buy more things. But everything that we spend is all in CloudCoins. Fascinating. So there's no need to borrow money if you're making real money. That is fascinating. You self, you just created your own money and self-financed, perhaps the first company ever to do so. Amazing. All right, Sean, stay yeah. with us. We'll let, this was a short segment. We'll take a time out, come back, and uh, take this to the top of the hour. Cryptocurrencies on The Conspiracy Show. Poking holes in the darkness. 
The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To see the light, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Just a reminder, coming up in the second hour, we'll speak with the CEO of a company that can erase cellular damage, stimulate tissue regeneration, treat a range of diseases, basically. Advances in molecular biology have found the reset button on the human body, not the Russia reset button with uh, Hillary. This is a different kind of reset button. And uh, right now, we were talking cryptocurrency uh, with Sean Worthington, tenured faculty member in the computer science department of Butte College and the author of Beyond Bitcoin, The Future of Digital Currencies. He's the creator of CloudCoin, the world's first cloud-based currency. And again, you can go to digitalfrontiernews.com, request a free copy of the book, Beyond Bitcoin, and uh, you can get yourself five free cloud coins. This is fascinating. You financed your company, the startup, by creating your own currency. And the people that were working on this project, you paid them, in cloud coins, and this may be, you're saying this may be the first time in history a company has done this? As far as I know, it is, yeah. Fascinating. Now, I know uh, you're very bullish on cloud coin because you're the creator of cloud coin, but for people that are out there uh, investigating cryptocurrencies, what are some of the things that they should uh, look for? You mentioned that there are these sort of these shell um, cryptocurrencies that are basically um, um, uh, repeats or, or, or knockoffs of of others. In other words, after examining some 700 cryptocurrencies, you found that 691 of them were actually duplicates. Um, mm-hmm. So what are some of the other things, some of the do's and don'ts of, 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 of buying cryptocurrency? Well, we have to apply some serious database rules to a monetary system to figure out what is the perfect monetary system. We think that we've created almost the perfect monetary system. We call it the perfect monetary system. It's going to be difficult, we think, to create anything that's better. And, of course, the first thing is counterfeits. With, uh, with a, if, you, if you can take a digital currency and just create a whole bunch of them, like mining, that's a bummer. With CloudCoin, we have no mining. We have no counterfeits. And so the, uh, we, we created the currency initially, and then that's all there is. Now, it is possible for us to split the currency if it becomes too valuable but in that case, everybody's money grows the same percentage. And so there's no weird money that pops up from the government or from the banking system into the monetary system to mess with people's logic. So counterfeiting is the first one. The second one is losing money, believe it or not. Right now, there's about 4 million or more than 4 million Bitcoins that have been lost permanently. And that's out of 60, uh, I'm sorry, uh, 20 million that have been mined. And so that's already 25% of all Bitcoins have been permanently lost. How does that happen? How do you lose your Bitcoin? Well, people lose their private key. So they're all dependent on their private key 
in order to get to their Bitcoins. And if they lose that, it's gone. Ah, I didn't know that. All right. And so with CloudCoin, there's no permanent loss. With Bitcoin, they have to pay for the servers and the infrastructure to pay for that by having these miners create new Bitcoins, and then they can use those Bitcoins to pay for their for their setups. But with the CloudCoin, we pay for the setup by having our miners mine for lost coins. And so they can find coins that have not been used for over two years, and they can mine them out and send them to a central place where they can be put together to create new cloud coins that will then pay for the infrastructure. So we don't have any permanent losses. But then there's a whole bunch of other rules, like who owns it, is it the right domain, uh, whether, you know, are we talking about copper and silver and gold, or are we talking about one number? There's, there's all kinds of different rules that would apply. This is another area we need to get into, uh, and that is the mining of, of Bitcoin. How does what is how do you mine cryptocurrency? You don't you don't put on a miner's uh, helmet with a little uh, light in, in the front and take a pickaxe. How how does that work? So of course mining is a euphemism, and really what they're trying to do is counterfeit. And the way that they do it is they just try to guess the number. And so these numbers, the system generates these random numbers. And it looks for the first one to guess it. And every time, every so often, these numbers get bigger and bigger. And so the computers have to spend more time guessing and guessing. So it's really a non-productive activity. It doesn't add any kind of value to society. They're just spending all of their processing power and resources, guessing numbers, checking them, guessing numbers, checking them. And the numbers are so big that it takes a long time, a lot of energy for that to happen. But it's really a waste and it's unnecessary. We don't need to have that. So they're, when you say they're, they are uh, counterfeiting, so these numbers that these computers are generating, these are not lost Bitcoin numbers. These are Bitcoins that are already in existence? So these are brand new Bitcoins that they get to generate. And of course, some people might not consider that counterfeiting, but I would consider it counterfeiting because they're bringing new data into the system that uh, should not really be there. Yeah, I have to. That, that that's a head scratcher for me. I don't. I don't really understand that. But you're saying with cloud coins, you cannot counterfeit it. Any Bitcoin mining would be, or any any mining of cryptocurrency would simply be to to recover coins that are lost. Yeah. So with CloudCoin, we have sixteen point seven million uh, seven hundred seventy-seven thousand two hundred sixteen notes, and it's a fixed amount, and it never changes unless we decide to split everything and we, then we have to clone the whole system. So you're saying you're not going to create more cloud coins? Well, uh, if we do, it will not be me creating some and then I've got some to spend. It'll be doubling everybody's money. All right. I'm not sure. Yeah, this is uh, this is an area. It's beyond my pay grade, but I'm I'm for the most part. I think I'm following along, and I hope people uh, are as well. You can at think home. of it as like a stock split. Okay. Sometimes yes. the company will do a stock split, and everybody's stocks will increase. Right. Do do you do you see? Uh, is it possible that that um, that cryptocurrency can continue to exist along? Side fiat currencies, or or is one just is it going to is it going to come to a head at some point uh, where where either cryptocurrency is 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 crushed by I don't know the Federal Reserve the central banks or somehow or um, can they coexist I guess is the question. Well, I'm sure there'll be some time that they coexist, but 
I believe that the most efficient is going to win. And I think that something like CloudCoin is going to dominate all other currencies, gold, silver, uh, paper money, uh, PayPal, Bitcoin, whatever you ha- have, because it is the easiest currency to use. And another thing about CloudCoin is it can actually be stored in our minds and we can transfer it via whisper. So it's absolutely the most private. So I think that the best currency will win. We have to economize as human beings. And CloudCoin is just extremely efficient. It stops all counterfeiting. It is a wonderful system. How could cryptocurrency and cloud coins, obviously included in that, how could they, uh, for example, um, help eradicate uh, poverty in the developing world? Where, you know, there's obviously there's a lack of capital. Um, the, the resources are there virtually untapped or they're being used by others. How can, how can cryptocurrency help alleviate poverty? Well, a lot of poverty is caused by government and banking systems, believe it or not. And so the governments can come in with these rules that destroy the free market. And the banks can come in with their rules where they're trying to get rich at the expense of everybody else, and they can destroy things. And this is particularly uh, prevalent in uh, places like Africa. And so if you can get around all of that system and go directly from person to person, that is going to absolutely change everything. But you're going to have to make sure that everyone has access to a cloud. Everyone has a computer, right? Yes, everybody. I mean, it's not quite that uh, impossible, but uh, because we can actually print them out on paper. We can print cloud coins on paper just like we print out dollar bills. But at some point, you need to check the money to make sure that it is real. And that does take an Internet connection. But the fact that we've got so many cell phones around the world, and each one of these cell phones can handle cloud coins, right. shows that it can be done widespread anyways. I mean, talk about disruptive. Uh, this this could change the entire world order, uh, and, and very quickly. How soon do you think this could happen? Well, um, I think it's going to take some time. It's probably going to take 20 years. It's been a long time going for people just to recognize that Bitcoin is there. I think only like 0.03% of the population have ever used Bitcoin. Only 7% have even heard of it. And so it's going to take a long time for this technology to get out there. But uh, I think once it's, once it's in, it's going to stay. Now, you're talking to someone who's a, you know, a, a big believer in the nation state. I'm not a globalist. I'm mm-hmm. not a one-worlder by any stretch. What is the role of the nation state if cryptocurrency, uh, let's say cloud coin, becomes uh, the global means of transaction? What is there a role for a nation state? Well, you know, before we had uh, uh, the money that we're using now, we used to have gold and silver, and gold and silver was pretty much uh, international. <laughs> so the money, really, uh, having a global monetary system is not the same as having a global government. They're completely separate. And, in fact, it'll strengthen the nation state because we're going to be able to do business with people without having to let them in the country, number one. Number two, we're going to have to keep certain people out because if they come in, they're going to to have access to money that they can use to, uh, to execute terrorist activities. And this is nothing to do with CloudCoin. This is with Bitcoin or anything else. 
they're going to be able to get money quickly into the country. So we're going to have to start ex- uh, excluding people who are at risk. Third, it's going to strengthen our uh, families. It's going to make people more wealthy. And it's going to reduce the strength of the government, which is going to cause everybody that isn't earning their keep, they're going to have to start earning their keep. And they're going to have to be much more concerned about their neighbors and uh, about the nation. You're checking all the boxes, my friend. I like what I'm hearing. Again, uh, how do people get uh, a hold of a free e-copy of Beyond Bitcoin, the Future of Digital Currency, and then five free cloud coins? So they can just Google buy cloud coin, or they can go directly to digitalfrontiernews.com and sign up for their newsletter. Sean, uh, this has been fascinating and a real education for me. I'm, I, I know I'm asking a lot of sort of pedestrian questions, uh, but uh, I've learned a lot, and I, I, I think my listeners have too. And what you're doing is absolutely intriguing and revolutionary. And uh, congratulations and thank you. Well, thank you for having me. Sean Worthington. All right, when we come back, resetting your body clock your biological age, perhaps, resetting your cellular biology. Is it possible? Well, coming up, we have a, uh, a CEO of a company that says his company can erase cellular damage, stimulate tissue regeneration, and treat a range of diseases. Again, reset button on the human body when the Conspiracy Show resumes in mere moments. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Well, thanks for inviting me into your home. Long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed rec room your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate in your cabin in the woods. And a big how-do to all of you listening in on our flagship station, Zoomer Radio, right here in Toronto, AM 740, 96.7 FM, 50,000 watts of peace, love, and truth. Hello, how are you to all of you listening in on one of our affiliate stations across North America, the uh, the Conspiracy Show podcast, of course, available everywhere, and the, the YouTube channel. All of you in the uh, YouTube live chat uh, who join us without fail every week, so supportive and loyal. We appreciate it. Uh, don't forget to uh, subscribe, incidentally. The, um, the, uh, the YouTube channel, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. We're sitting just below, just south of 7,000 subs, trying to get to 10,000. Let's see if we can get it up to 7,000 subs by uh, this time next week. Can you help? Appreciate that. Uh, don't forget to uh, subscribe. Uh, oh, the apps, Zoomer Radio and Conspiracy Show apps. They're both free downloads available for Apple and Android. So, you know, there's just so many ways to listen to this program. Uh, and watch, if you want to watch the radio on uh, on YouTube. So however and wherever you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes, and I thank you for your fine company. A bio-regeneration coming up. Uh, Albert is here, Ian is here, and Orion. Uh, next week, uh, oh, and Zachary. 
Zachary, uh, the, um, the, the young intern helping to run the, uh, the board. Uh, next week on the uh, program, James D. Eugenio, our good friend James, terrific assassination researcher. Although, I, I don't know, terrific in assassination. You don't want to put those two words together. <laughs> but he's a, a, a very, very uh, uh, sort of detailed, tenacious uh, researcher in the field of particularly JFK assassination uh, research. He'll be here to talk about the Pentagon Papers and this, this new Spielberg-Hanks film, The Post. James uh, really not happy with it. Uh, more sort of myth-making, as he likes to call it. So we'll be uh, here to talk about this new film, The Post. Have you seen it yet? Is it any good? I don't know. Ryan, have you seen it? Any? No, he's shaking. No? No interest? All right. Um, anyway, what? Um, in the uh, the second hour, we'll uh, speak with remote viewer Igor Grigich. Igor Grigich. I guess he's a Russian remote viewer. Oh, they're good over there. They know the remote viewing. Isn't that right, Albert? Wouldn't you say? The Russians, right? A tough, a tough crowd to follow. They are. All right. That's all next week on the program. So, hey, what if your body came with a reset button that could erase cellular damage, stimulate tissue regeneration, and cure a range of diseases? Well, we're going to talk about that. And uh, we're going to do with the, uh, the CEO of BioQuark, Inc., Ira S. Pastor has 30 years of experience across multiple sectors of the pharmaceutical industry, including a pharmaceutical commercialization, biotech drug development, managed care distribution, and uh, retail. He served as vice president business development for the drug development company uh, Phytomedics, Inc., raising $40 million of private equity, uh, consummating over $50 million in licensing deals, and bringing lead drug candidates from discovery stage to phase three development, Ira S. Pastor. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Great. Thanks for having me, Richard. Tell me about BioQuark. Uh, when, where, when did it start? Where is it located? And what, what, what is your mission? Uh, we are uh, we're located here on the, uh, the east coast of the United States, uh, in both Philadelphia and Tampa, Florida. And the, the core uh, of the company uh, was set up to basically uh, examine all of the wonderful species that we uh, co-inhabit this planet with that from a uh, health and wellness perspective are just so much further advanced um, than we are. Uh, and whether that be things like complex uh, regeneration of limbs and spinal cords and hearts and eyeballs and brains, or whether it's their unique ability to uh, to shrug cancer off as if it was the common cold, or even some of the species that uh, live here that you know decide you know not to age, or the ones that like to age in reverse, or even the ones that die and are reborn. Um, you know, as we as humans, when it comes to all of this stuff, are just really bad at accomplishing any of these things. Uh, and, you know, having spent uh, 30 years in the pharmaceutical industry, which is, you know, purely based on treating you as opposed to curing you of anything, we really wanted to sort of relink uh, what nature shows us uh, and what is possible uh, in non-human organisms and reawaken the capabilities in humans. So that's sort of been our our major objective, uh, informing the company and moving forward as we've been doing the last several years. So is... Is part of regeneration, is the goal to um, 
I guess, decode the aging process, reverse aging? I mean, do we have something to learn, for example, from the Greenland shark, which apparently these things can live, you know, longer than Betty White? Absolutely. Uh, they've, been, they've been swimming around longer than, uh, you know, we here in the United States had a country. Um, yes, I mean, that's a beautiful example of a case of uh, a species that has so-called uh, negligible senescence. Uh, just grows to an age and doesn't age anymore. Uh, and in that lie secrets to basically how time, uh, for lack of a better word, is turned back in the cells of the body, uh, keeping it in the perpetual state of youthfulness or freezing age. And so we see this same dynamic whether we're talking about age uh, or whether we're talking about erasing a tumor uh, and turning it back into normal tissue, or in the case of regeneration, I mean, what is really going on is uh, the program that originally uh, grew that part of the body, uh, whether, you know, once again, whether it was the spinal cord or the limb or the brain, uh, and saying, you know, something's missing here. Uh, let's start over with the development process and put a new piece there that belongs there. So uh, underlying it all is this ability to, in essence, you know, turn back time in the cells and start over the process again. I see these commercials now. Of, I'm not, I'm not going to mention the company. I don't even remember it. But they talk about determining your, your cellular age versus your biological age. Uh, and um, uh, this is linked in with the telomeres, which are those little Kind of the things that at the end of your shoelace, whatever those are called, they actually have a name. Did you know that, Ryan? Those little plastic Maglet. things. That, that, hey, bingo, you've got it. But So these telomeres at the end of your, I guess, it's a strand of DNA. And as the DNA replicates, the telomeres get shorter and shorter. And that's really what's, which sort of um, preventing us from breaking, you know, past, let's say, living 100, what's the record, 127 years or something, this that chain-smoking woman from France? Right, 123, yeah, Madame Jean Clément. <laughs> there you go. So, um, I mean, does, does this have to do with finding a way of preventing the, these telomeres from shrinking? Uh, telomeres are part of it. I mean, telomeres are, you know, per that analogy of your shoelace, uh, telomeres are there to do a function, and that is basically to keep your chromosomes inside your cells stable. Because as you, they divide, as you said, yes, they get shorter and shorter, and DNA on your chromosomes gets uh, scrambled and less flexible, and bad things happen. So, yes, I mean, age and telomere length are reset routinely in humans, uh, when we are first created uh, and in our mother's wombs. So lengthening telomeres is a part of the bigger picture of regenerating and resetting age in a cell, but it's not the only thing. If you just lengthen telomeres, um, remember, cancer cells love to use telomeres to, to grow out of control. So there's many uh, pieces of the aging puzzle and telomere length is important, but we just have to make sure that uh, they are neither too short, which is bad, but you don't want them too long either, because uh, that leads to certain other unwanted things. What What is the goal? Uh, to to dramatically extend average lifespan or to make us simply more healthy and active well into our 80s and 90s? Yeah, the, the goal in the short term is health span. So, uh, you know, we say make 90 the new 40. Um, 
making you as vibrant and rejuvenated as you were in your 30s and 40s uh, and much later on in life and basically eliminating the major chronic degenerative diseases that kill us in our 70s, 80s, and 90s. And the big ones, of course, are heart disease, cancer, and uh, Alzheimer's. Um, significantly extended lifespan, uh, so where you see potential, for instance, to mimic the Greenland shark, uh, or other species that live multi-hundred years, that's a little bit further out. Uh, in those particular cases, to undertake something like that would require uh, success not only on the uh, aging front, but also in the reversal of the death process, which really are two separate things. Uh, we're interested in both, and we study both, uh, but that in terms of lifespan extension and, you know, extreme life extension is a little further down the road than health span. But health span is the goal today. Um, 90 the new 40. 90 is the new 40. Wow. Ira, well, Mick Jagger, I think, is bound and determined to prove that. Uh, Ira S. Pastor, CEO of BioCork, Inc. Um, would you consider yourself a transhumanist? Um, you know, I... <laughs> I, I consult for one of the transhumanist organizations down here on the uh, the regeneration front. Uh, I think the transhumanism movement is interesting, and you know some of the things they are uh, going after. Uh, I applaud, uh, you know, primarily on the biologic side. Um, I'm less of a transhumanist, I guess, in the uh, in the fact that the, you, know, ha- you know half of it is focused on a uh, sort of silicon-based future for us as opposed to a carbon-based future. Uh, I'm very comfortable being a carbon-based life form. Uh, I personally do not have any interest in uh, in becoming a cyborg or, or a uh, you know, uploading my mind into a computer and living uh, forever inside a uh, a laptop. Uh, that's that's less of my transhumanist interest. The the core of it is uh, healthy lifespan extension, uh, and that's probably where I stand. All right, all right. the transhumanist equation. All right, you stay put, and we will uh, reconnoiter on the other side. A quick timeout. Back with more of the conspiracy show. Stay with us. Question everything. This is the conspiracy show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Ira Pastor, CEO of BioCork Inc. We're talking about bio-regeneration. Um, how much of this has to do with actual uh, bioengineering? So, for example, if, let's say, there's some sort of a breakthrough and we figure out what allows a Greenland shark uh, to live for a thousand years, or we figure out how a salamander can regrow its tail, uh, would this bioregeneration involve, uh, I guess, essentially creating a a a chimera, taking... Um, a genes or or DNA from a salamander or a Greenland shark or what have you, and and uh, inserting that into a human cell. Um, no, uh, and that is not the direction we've gone um, with the company, primarily because. Um, there have been a lot of people that have come before us in this area that have studied the genetics of 
many species and sort of the evolutionary scheme of things. And one thing we keep running into, uh, and this is one of the big surprises in the Human Genome Project about 20 years ago, is that we pretty much all have the same genes. Um, there's not very much difference between us and blade and, of grass and dogs <laughs> and snakes and frogs and fish. Yeah, we have a lot of the same stuff. So the key is not in genetic engineering. The key is in looking at the genes and seeing what those species do slightly different with them than we do, and why we may keep them in a slightly silent state uh, versus another organism that will turn on. Uh, them full blast to regenerate a part as opposed to uh, a gene of it in ours that gets turned on and makes scar tissue. We think this is really the key because the other interesting thing that pops up is that a lot of the genes that are responsible for regeneration are also integrally related to cancer. And so we don't want to just pop more genes in that can have uncontrolled proliferation, that doesn't get us to our end goal. We need to understand how the body controls those genes in a controlled manner, upregulate them, downregulate them at the point in time where we want the regeneration to have. And it's a very interesting connection that the most, and we can get into this a little later, the most cancer-resistant organisms on this planet, the ones that I mentioned shrug cancer off, uh, are the regenerators. <laughs> so there are some very interesting things to learn on both fronts, and the key is yeah, not making chimeras, not making you know human frogs or anything, but in really finding out the differences and how those genes are tweaked uh, when that you know when that decapitation event happens in the limb, uh, and what makes it different and what happens in humans and regulate upregulate with conventional biologics, which will be much more cost-effective and well-suited to, uh, you know, traditional development purposes. Now, th this is not a, a religious program, I, but I, I do happen to be a Bible-believing Christian, and, of course, in the Bible, people were told before the flood lived hundreds and hundreds of years, Methuselah and, and Noah. Um, I mean, is it is it possible? I mean, you mentioned uh, that there's there are genes or there there is DNA that maybe simply has to be reactivated. So is it possible that in fact we at one point we did live much longer, uh, and for whatever reason those that DNA has become uh, dormant or uh, has simply been switched off. Uh, it, I, I would love to have the ability to go in a time machine and go back and, and see exactly what was going on, but most likely, and definitely, it was a very different world back then, not just from a perspective of societies and countries and so forth, but uh, it was just a very different so-called ecosystem, microenvironment that were around people. And, you know, I like to point out that, you know, the species that on this planet that possess extended life and health span or are significantly resilient to disease um, have really two qualities. They exploit either very little from the natural world around them or they give a lot back to it. Uh, you know, trees clean the air and water and produce oxygen for us and do all that fun stuff. So, yeah, it's very possible that the way we lived back then in societies um, and the structure and the fact that we didn't, you know, weren't pumping all the junk into the air that we are now and that we don't have all the holes in the ozone that we have now um, yielded a different 
microenvironment that people lived in. And yeah, sure, it's very possible that there were substantially extended lifespans back then uh, compared to today, uh, no doubt. Uh, you're the same BioQuark that um, was running a small pilot study to try and rejuvenate the inactive brains of patients who had been declared brain dead, correct? That is us. This was written up in, in, in Fortune magazine and so forth. Tell me about that project. This is sure, fascinating. Absolutely. It caused quite a stir. Uh, that project, uh, you know, it came uh, into existence uh, based on uh, a few factors. One, um, the last couple of years saw some very high-profile brain death cases in the United States, primarily that of uh, Whitney Houston's daughter, Bobby Christina Brown, and another young lady named Jahai McMath. Uh, in California, which brought the topic to the public for, um, combined with the fact uh, that we have many species on this planet whose brains, for lack of a better word, can be destroyed, uh, you know, shotgun blast type destruction, uh, only to regenerate and grow back uh, with perfect structure and function. Um, and the last part of it is the fact that in the United States and in many other countries around the world, the area of so-called living cadaver research uh, has been going on for many decades. So basically the ability to study and treat patients uh, that are technically dead but are still on cardiopulmonary support, nutritional support, and so forth. So we put all these factors together. We said, you know what? Death in its current definition was defined back in 1968. Um, it's 2018 now, and we have a much different set of technologies in front of us uh, that we can begin to explore what it means to reconnect life, uh, which primarily you know, is involves the, the brainstem and the ability to independently breathe and have an independent heartbeat, uh, and start thinking about how we can blur the lines in some of these real severe disorders of consciousness, not just brain death, but coma, persistent vegetative state, and all of the trickle-down effects to the chronic degenerative diseases of the brain, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and so forth. So it is a, a pilot program. It is very exploratory at this point, uh, but it is nonetheless something that close to zero dollars has been put into by the traditional pharmaceutical industry, and it's something we believe has important uh, purpose to uh, be explored uh, in, in today's day and age. Uh, the Reanima project. And, I mean, the, the the ethical implications here are enormous. I mean, you mentioned the uh, the idea of brain death being sort of defined in 1968. Uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but was that not related to the need to find a patient for a Christian Bernard's first um, it was open heart surgery, or uh, was it not in in South Africa? I'm, I'm, I'm not sure of the connection of the case, but it was, it was defined as such in 1968 at Harvard by a group of very uh, smart intensivists uh, that defined the sort of the protocols and the diagnostic criteria that we still use today. Um, the problem is that despite the irreversibility stamp they put on it, um, if you go into the literature, you will find several dozen cases of so-called natural brain death reversal, primarily in quite young subjects um, who, you know, you know, retain some type of neuroregeneration niche. Now, although these cases are very controversial and hotly debated, um, they nonetheless show that things are not always black and white when it comes to what death means. Uh, and so we feel it sort of 
it's in a priority or you know it's important that it gets some attention uh, because you know on top of all of that um, you know most people don't know, you know when you die uh, the majority of everything below your your brain is functioning very well uh, you know you can you can be dead and do a lot of things uh, from have a baby to grow to mature to metabolize fight infections and so forth so there's really a major sort of insult to injury uh, going on so uh, we think it is a a viable ethical area of pursuit alongside everything else we're doing and this would involve uh, sort of I guess the uh, the um, holy grail regenerating damaged neuron tissue which which is what happens I guess in a, in a, in a brain dead uh, patient so how do you do that is it with stem cells or how, how is that done well, it's a, it's a combination of things. So when we look at the species that can regenerate a brain, uh, it involves stem cells. Uh, it involves certain signals that tell those stem cells to become part of a new brain. You, know, you, you don't want a heart forming inside your skull. Um, so the signals. Uh, it involves certain factors that digest and get rid of the dead tissue. Uh, and then there's a whole set of inflammatory and sort of immune system components that come into place. So it, is, it involved putting together a protocol that included stem cells, uh, adult stem cells, that included certain proteins and peptides that tell and dictate where the stem cells go, where they grow, what they become, size, shape, and so forth, uh, and various tools that are currently used in the intensive care unit to stimulate coma patients. Um, so we're sort of taking what, you know, a combinatorial approach to the problem because clearly it is a big problem. But the, um, the fact that there really is only one mechanism of death uh, in the way our brain dies, you know, with, we, our brain dies because of many diseases, but ultimately there's only one cascade that occurs. Uh, we think it's a much easier target uh, than many other diseases, actually. So um, it's not going to happen tomorrow morning, but uh, this is going to happen, in our opinion, much sooner than other major medical uh, advances. And, and even if the this long-term goal of reversing brain death it proves to be impossible, there are other ancillary benefits, as much as the same as when we we went to the moon, uh, it wasn't just about bringing back moon rocks. It was all of the, the benefits that we enjoy here on Earth, like the development of Kevlar and, uh, well, tang orange juice. No, I'm just kidding. But I'm being somewhat flippant. But in other words, if we don't get to the moon, there are, there are other benefits in terms of the work that you're doing with this Reanima project, correct? I'm thinking about Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. It trickles down to degenerative diseases, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, ALS. It trickles down to spinal cord injury. Uh, and it trickles down to all traumatic brain injuries. Uh, you know, we 50,000 of us leave this world every day uh, because of acute trauma to the brain, uh, not disease of aging. So it, it affects a lot of people. Um, and it, the more we can learn from these type of research and the fact that it exists, I mean, it is an existing research domain of living cadaver uh, study, um, that has gone on, as I said, for 30 years now, um, we might as well do it for a constructive purpose uh, as opposed to just you know, using cadavers for you know, studying surgical techniques and, and high-dose chemotherapy and things like that. When we talk about stem cell therapy, you're talking about adult stem cells, correct? 
Right, right. We are we are working only with uh, adult stem cells in that particular case. But on top of that, and and really, a much more, in our opinion, important part of the equation are the biochemical signals um, that tell those stem cells what to become. Uh, it's sort of like you know you can't just build a house with bricks. You need a foreman and blueprints and everything else on the job to construct the house. Uh, and that is sort of the integrated approach we're bringing to the table. Well, aside from the Reanima project, how involved are you in, in other forms of stem cell therapy uh, for the, the use of regeneration? For example, I'm hearing great strides uh, with stem cell therapy and, and things like cerebral palsy, uh, even things like diabetes. Well, yeah, we are. Um, we study stem cells, um, but we don't use stem cells uh, as much in some of the other protocols, primarily because we are interested in endogenous regeneration, so basically stimulating uh, those organs with uh, more traditional drugs to regrow and regenerate. So uh, we foresee a day where stem cells are useful, but if we can get them out of the equation entirely and just stimulate your existing, in the case of diabetes, pancreas to regrow based on the signals and the appropriate stimuli that your natural stem cells come out and proliferate in large amounts, um, we've done a great job and, and, and we're happy. So um, we, we're much more on the biologic side of things, you know, thinking growth factors, peptides, things of this nature, as opposed to uh, purely a stem cell approach. All right, Ira, you stay put. We'll uh, come back and continue to talk about bio-regeneration. The reset button on the human body. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. The truth will set you free. But first, it will really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Ira Pastor is the CEO of BioQuark, a biopharmaceutical company developing proprietary biological drugs for regeneration and repair of human organs and tissues. I was reading a, a, a release, PR Newswire, uh, and it says here, of the $2.6 trillion annual U.S. health care bill, $2.6 trillion, the majority that is spent on direct patient care is focused on diseases with a cell damage or re- degeneration component, do you, what is the, the the figure of that 2.6 trillion in healthcare? How much is focused on diseases with cell damage or degeneration component? Do we know? Is it 80 percent, 70 percent? Oh, it's uh, it, it's all it's if you carve out infectious diseases, which is a a small a small couple percentages of it, uh, it's all. It's either uh, we either have diseases that have 
degenerative components, so your Alzheimer's, your congestive heart failure, uh, your Parkinson's, your diabetes, or those where there is a cellular damage, genetic or epigenetic component, uh, think your autoimmune diseases, your cancer, your chronic inflammation and pain, your fibrotic disorders, uh, it's, all, I mean, it's, it, it's beyond that. It's, you, know, you look at $7 trillion we're spending on healthcare around the world now, uh, it's the majority. Um, you know, a few hundred million probably going to infectious diseases nowadays, but everything else is is uh, is this area. So it's um, <laughs> it's a, it's a big problem, right? And and um, you mentioned organ transplants; they're they're, they're limited because of there's a, a donor gap, and then we have. Uh, there are certain certain obstacles with the stem cell space uh, because of regulatory challenges and so forth. And then pharmaceuticals, uh, they can slow down degenerative diseases, but they can't reverse cell damage. So then the, the answer, we're hoping, is lies with what we call biological drugs. What is a biological drug? Oh, well, uh, in its basic definition, a biologic is sort of any... Uh, drug produced uh, by a living cell system. So we're not talking about synthesizing chemicals uh, that you put into little, you know, little white pills that you might get at your corner uh, drugstore. But we're talking about things more like uh, growth hormones, uh, insulin. Uh, in fact, vaccines fall into the the area of biologics. So either protein or carbohydrate-based substances that your body naturally processes. Um, and that has a natural endogenous component. So your body normally knows these substances and in some places produces them for different purposes as opposed to just a, a new chemical drug that you know, your body has never seen before. Uh, that just uh, you know, that sort of the mainstay of the traditional drug industry. So talk to me about BQA. Sure. I mean, BQA uh, sort of is the... Uh, lead candidate that we've been developing for the last several years, and this is based very interestingly on on research that goes back actually to the 1940s, where we first studied the ability of eggs uh, to turn back time. So uh, in eggs or oocytes, which all human females produce, um, is the power uh, that resets age, and that's why you know our children are all born aged zero. Uh, and it is also the reason why uh, all of our children are born without the chronic degenerative diseases of old age. Uh, you will never have a baby that is born with Alzheimer's disease, as an example. Uh, this power of resetting and starting over is captured in the female egg. Uh, men really don't do anything uh, in this process. But so we wanted to study these dynamics and basically figure out what are all the proteins and microRNA and other biofactors that are responsible for this because this is really where naturally we can capture uh, what has been put in front of us uh, for the last you know, couple billion years, um, and and that is in essence what BQA is. It is a mixture of proteins, peptides, and other substances that we find in ooplasm at that particular time. Uh, right after an egg is fertilized to create the new embryo. And that, we believe, is a really important basin of possibilities, not just for resetting age, but for cleaning up the genome, for erasing disease, and also, you know, containing all the signals that, you know, create the new life. 
uh, in the first place. So, uh, you know, there was a lot of excitement about stem cells, but the really exciting cell uh, is the egg, uh, and, and, and we have a lot to learn from it. So where are, where are you at in the development of BQA? Uh, well, it depends where we are. Uh, in the United States, we are a, still a preclinical company. We have a three-year plan to get into the clinic, and our clinical development program here uh, is focused on kidney regeneration. Uh, that is a you know sixty billion dollar market when one takes into account the uh, the amount of dialysis and kidney transplants that go on and the kidney rejection drugs. Outside of the United States, things are a little different. We are active with partners in some other countries just because of the nature of the uh, you know the system nowadays. There's two hundred other countries out there that are really coming up to speed with their biomedical R&D, and if you're not looking in Asia and South America and other places, you're sort of mixing a big picture. So, uh, you know, we are active in countries like Thailand, India, uh, Mexico, where we are moving a little faster into the clinic uh, and have some work going on in the spinal cord injury that's quite exciting right now. So, you know, slowly but surely, we are beginning to, to get into phase one programs, uh, develop our first in human experience, uh, and see some really exciting results. Uh, so we, um, you know, we, we see in the next five to ten years to have, uh, you know, a couple of different products on the drug market, um, or the, the biologic drug market, uh, for some of these different indications. Uh, in terms of organ regeneration and uh, and spinal cord injury, we are also involved in cancer research. Uh, this is a little further along, but uh, down the road, but uh, focusing on how these same moieties that we find when we're working with BQA not only allow for regeneration but allow for the cellular eraser of that damage. So this has been something we've been working on with regard to models in our lab, with regard to breast cancer, brain cancer, and melanoma. Uh, on how that dynamic of basically cancer reversion or cancer erasing uh, can happen where you do not need chemotherapy anymore uh, but can really change a tumor into normal tissue again. It sounds like we are on the cusp, or you, I should say, are on the cusp of uh, really cracking some important codes that could net. I mean, I hate to break things down into dollars and cents, but if you're talking about you know, $7 trillion worldwide spent on, on health care. And this is just crippling, let's face it, it's crippling economies. Uh, the, the legacy costs are just unbelievable. Uh, this could just open up a whole new, new world. Imagine the savings alone. The savings alone would just be astronomical. Yeah, the, you know, we waste a lot. Uh, and that seven trillion dollars, uh, you know, I point out, you know, it eclipses, uh, you know, oil and natural gas and precious metal mining, uh, and it's in perpetuity. Uh, you know, disease never goes away. It's uh, <laughs> it's always going to be here with us as long as we live on this planet. So um, we have to have solutions that go beyond uh, the last hundred years of what the pharmaceutical industry has developed. All right, Ira, uh, I'm just going to take another quick time out. Come back. We'll finish up uh, to the top of the hour and uh, continue to delve into bio-regeneration. Ira Pastor, CEO of BioQuark, Inc., right here on The Conspiracy Show. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Question everything. 
This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Bio-Regeneration, Ira Pastor, CEO of BioCork, Inc. Uh, the, uh, the Fed regulations uh, dealing with, with uh, biopharma, is it uh, the same with other, the same sort of process as with other pharmaceuticals, or is it slightly different? Same. Um, the uh, the biologic development process, uh, you know, might have like slightly different uh, people that oversee it. But at the end of the day, the rules, uh, as they pertain to either synthetic drugs or biologics, um, are are pretty much the the standard. Um, now there are other groups that are formed that you know take a. Uh, an oversight into things that are a little more exotic, like some of the newer sort of gene editing and, and gene manipulation technologies. But um, uh, what we're doing is pretty much sort of drug development 101. So there, there's no sort of surprises here. What, what, how do you feel about the uh, this whole? Uh, it's a thing now. This biohacking. In fact, I had uh, a gentleman on uh, Coast to Coast AM uh, last week. Uh, who's selling these uh, CRISPR kits online, and and people are experimenting. Uh, I mean, we do we do have you know we we own our body, we own our genome, and so forth. But how do you feel about this biohacking trend? Um, it really it depends uh, on sort of what the goal is. Um, uh, you know, there's uh, there's trends, and then there's trends. So uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm all for. Um, uh, people taking care of their nutrition and um, doing the sort of the simpler things that uh, we all sort of know about. Uh, But when it comes to, for instance, uh, this do-it-yourself gene editing and genetic engineering, uh, you know, in your living room, um, you got to remember that thrusting new genes uh, attached to viruses into your your body of 50 trillion cells, uh, you don't have a lot of control over what happens. So um, I'm not a uh, I'm all for um, sort of advocacy and finding interesting ways through regulations and uh, doing work in other countries where the regulations may be uh, a little more fluid and easier to, to move things along, but taking things uh, sort of out of the lab and right to the, li- the living room um, scares me in, in certain contexts, and I sort of you know, guard against doing any of that stuff. Uh, I wanted to ask you, I'm just going to kind of go on a, on a blue sky this one, and that has to do, I was going to ask you about colostrum, because you mentioned, you know, the, some of the miracle qualities uh, in, in the egg, the embryo, or not the embryo, but the egg. What about um, colostrum produced by breasts during pregnancy, the, you know, the, the, the antibodies and the proteins and everything uh, that we're told has almost miraculous abilities to protect uh, babies with immunity and so forth. Do you do any work with colostrum? Um, I've studied it. We've studied it in the past, actually not um, uh, in regard to um, this company, but I am f- quite familiar with the area. And yes, I mean, there is 
a reason, uh, whether it is the egg or whether it is the other side of the process in terms of nourishing uh, the new baby and supplying uh, active and passive immunity factors and all sorts of other things uh, that uh, come through uh, breast milk. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a reason it's been going on in that fashion for you know, hundreds of millions of years in nature. Um, evolution and the powers that be uh, design these systems uh, as such. And um, you know, there's a reason why um, we've survived so long and in, in not always, uh, you know, the healthiest living conditions. And I would think colostrum is a wonderful example of how nature has created this cocktail, let's say, of uh, beneficial properties for our young children. All right, let's go to the phones. David is in Hamilton, has a question about brain death. David, go ahead. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Hi, David, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? I can loud and clear. You're on the air with Ira Pastor from BioCorp. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, yeah, I have a, a brief question. I'll ask it, and then, as they say, on coast to coast, I'll take my answer off the air. All right. Uh, I've been troubled by something for a long time. Uh, the idea that uh, suppose I am brain dead, um, my brain has been damaged, doesn't function anymore. Now, from my perspective, I'm dead. I'm gone permanently. Let's say that somehow this technology can now regenerate my brain so that some sort of a facsimile of me uh, still exists, and that will make my friends and, and loved ones very happy if, if I had any. Uh, uh, but this is a difficult philosophical question. Is that person that comes back, is it really me? Uh, from my perspective, I just don't see it. So uh, thank you very much. Interesting question. David, do you want to, or uh, Ira, do you want to tackle that one? Yeah, yeah, excellent question. I'm glad it was brought up. Um, we have known uh, for the last 60, 70 years that many of the species on this planet whose brains can be destroyed uh, only to come back, know things, and remember information from before the event. Uh, this is one of those unexplained topics in biology that gets shuttled under the rug. So there are really two schools of thought in cognitive neuroscience today. One, uh, that you are nothing more than the few pounds of stuff inside your skull, or the other side, which says, no, uh, the stuff inside your skull is important, uh, but it is, doesn't explain a lot. Uh, and that you, your consciousness, your memories, your soul are a much larger process that goes well beyond your skull into relating to things, your environment, the rest of your body's electrochemical complexity. And that, you know, if we were able to take out uh, Richard Surrett's brain and just store it miraculously in a tank of fluid somewhere, uh, that you probably agree that is not Richard Surrett anymore. Uh, you are much more than just that thing. Uh, so we are taking into account uh, the ability of regenerative species to store memory uh, beyond just the nervous system tissue. Uh, and then there's, there's the incredible range of phenomena in humans that are not explained by the traditional brain-centric model. Uh, it doesn't explain these children that are born without a cortex. Uh, yet are completely conscious. You know, they have no higher brain, <laughs> but they are conscious individuals. It also doesn't explain all these weird gain in function processes where you know somebody that you know gets hit on the head with a brick one day and can play Mozart the next and never had any formal training. Um, 
the brain is a, an incredible uh, area, and it's something we know very little about. Uh, yet a program like this will help us, in our opinion, elucidate much more than we know today, and in many ways uncover a lot of these secrets that have just, you know, we've known about for decades, but we've had no explanation for. I, I agree. I, I think sometimes we should spend less um, less energy and uh, resources on outer space and more on inner space. Uh, let's. Uh, everyone's hung up on getting to Mars. Why not figuring out, you know, how the human brain works and what is consciousness and where does it reside and so forth. Uh, I wanted to ask you about the liver. I know you're focused uh, on on the kidney um, in terms of of a cancer, for example. Um, but why is why is it that I'm, the liver? I'm fascinated. I mean, it will regenerate, but other organs do not. Yeah, the liver is the only organ in our body that um, has, let's just say, a substantial regenerative capability. However, it is not a um, what you see in things like salamanders where you get perfect structure and function, is it's known as epimorphic regeneration. What, what you see in the human liver is known as hypertrophic regeneration. So when, if you, you know, God forbid, you're, someone stabs you in the liver and you lose a part of it, the rest of the liver, uh, its stem cells will expand in size and in quantity and take over the missing part of the liver and take on its function. It doesn't give you exactly the same liver structure again. Uh, it expands in size, but nonetheless, it takes on function. Uh, it is probably the only area, uh, with the exception, of course, the, the obvious turnover regeneration, you know, our blood and our right. layer of skin uh, that we have. Uh, and it is one of those miraculous things. Um, wish I had it in other organs, but unfortunately, we just don't. All right, another quick brain question from Melanie. Melanie, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Go uh, ahead. Thank you. Wonderful topic. Um, at what stage of a brain development of a baby does the brain register pain? And my concern is for the cowardice of our politicians in North America to allow almost live birth abortions and that Canada has no right to, about abortion as to when it can be done because it is a human being. We're treating the unborn as if they're not human beings. They are. They're not reptiles inside of a mother's uh, <coughs> body. So I'd like to know what pain would a, a seven-month fetus feel when it's being aborted in the womb in the United States, partial birth abortions, and also here in Canada. I find that just frightening and shocking and a horror that society can allow something like that to, to go on in this uh, well, day now and about age. 70, Thank you, Melanie, for that. Now about 70%, more than 70% of uh, Americans anyway, now feel uh, that it should be limited uh, to the, the first three months. However, uh, just a general question about uh, b brains perceiving pain at what stage of development? Oh, it, it's, you know, partial birth abortion is a horrible thing. Uh, when do you perceive pain? Much earlier. Um, and remember, uh, we as embryos, uh, even before we're fetuses, uh, have a very complex nervous system. We don't have a brain for the first several weeks, but we do have impulses, electrochemical impulses, that clearly can process external stimuli, whether it's loving stimuli or pain, uh, very early on. So I would say 
almost immediately. I mean, we are, uh, you know, although we're just a couple cells at that early point in time, uh, we are undertaking hundreds of thousands of cell divisions every, you know, second uh, and becoming uh, morphing. Uh, and the embryo is an entity at that point. So um, I would say very early. Very right. early, can you perceive pain? Just about out of time, just a quick question. We've spent, a, you know, trillion dollars uh, on the war on cancer. Uh, if we go the biopharma route, uh, I mean, how, where are we uh, in terms of, you know, this road to winning or this war and winning uh, uh, the uh, cancer, uh, cancer revision, reversion rather, cancer reversion? How, how many years do you think it might take? Uh, if, if we go down this path, we're talking in the next five to ten years, we'll have a major impact on the system. And right now you have 14 million new cancer cases every year. You have 8 million people will, that will die. I mean, those are the numbers. Uh, we, the war on cancer is a failure the way it exists today because of the kill-centric approach. Uh, we are, whether we're taking a shotgun and blowing cancer cells away or a sniper rifle approach, we miss the big picture that the real possibilities and what nature tells us is it's not about a kill event. It is about a change event. And just like you wouldn't chop out your brain if you found out you had Alzheimer's disease or chop out your pancreas when you have diabetes, the concept of killing a tumor, while it may be palatable and may make some sort of visceral sense in the short term, might not be the right approach. And so we're, we think we'll have a major impact, no doubt, in the next five to ten years with this reversion and changing approach of turning a tumor back into a normal tissue. Ira, thank you so much. I'll have to have you back. This was fascinating. I appreciate thank your time. Thank you so much, Richard. It was a pleasure. Ira Pastor, BioQuark. Thank you all, Ryan, Albert, Ian. Back next week with a brand new program. And uh, don't forget Zachary. Great job in there too, buddy. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.